Welcome to the Experts in the Field podcast, coming to you from the Centre for Mental Health and Wellbeing, a collaboration between Help University and the Malaysian Mental Health Association. The Experts in the Field podcasts bring you conversations on mental health and well-being from those on the cutting edge of clinical practice, research and innovation. I'm your host, Mark Archer, Associate Professor in Psychology at Help University's Faculty of Behavioral Sciences, Languages and Education. In today's podcast, I'm speaking with Dr. Eric Kuhn. Eric is the co-chair of the Stanford Mental Health Technology and Innovation Hub. He's a clinical psychologist and works on interventions, developing and researching at the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs National Center for PTSD. Eric and his team have created a suite of mental health apps, including PTSD Coach, which is the focus of this conversation. The interview was actually produced for a Science of Mental Health and Wellbeing course that we run at Help University as part of the Undergraduate Psychology Program. And it was really just to expand on a paper that we'd covered during that course, which was a clinical trial of one of the apps, the PTSD Coach app. However, uh, as we listened to the conversation and talked to colleagues, um, we thought it might be of wider interest. So we've decided to share that conversation here as a podcast. We talk about a wide range of related topics, uh, including the uptake of digital interventions, the strong evidence base for this sort of self-help tool, how it relates to other intervention use, and particularly the access to more formal evidence-based treatments. We cover a wide range of other things in relation, including COVID-19. You may be intrigued um, by Eric's mention at one point of a top-secret development by his team that he's not able to divulge, and he was waiting White House clearance. So since we've recorded the interview, that clearance has been granted, and I'll make a short note on that at the end of the podcast. Uh, let me apologize in advance for a few glitches in production and sound quality. This is just the result of inexperience and imperfect quick kit. We will be striving to improve this as we go along producing future episodes. If you have any questions, please contact us through the details provided. And we'll be glad to hear of any requests you have for other topics or other guests to cover in future episodes. And now... The Center for Mental Health and Wellbeing brings you expert in the field, Dr. Eric Kuhn. Thank you again, Eric, for taking part in this. It's very nice to get a, an extra bit of reflection on your work, uh, having read your paper on PTSD Coach. Uh, could you first, before we start in a few questions about your work, just give a brief intro about how you got to be doing this kind of stuff? Oh, yeah, sure. So... In graduate school at the University of Albany, uh, the tech, where the technology kind of vein comes from is um, at the University of Albany in New York, I was in a lab where we were doing actual kind of uh, handheld computer work back in 1999-ish, um, uh, where we were looking at the relationship between stress and headache. So I was at the Center for Stress and Anxiety Disorders at the university. Uh-huh. And it was like one, the first of its kind. And these were, you know, handheld, they were like, um, little notebook kind of computers, but they were so cutting edge then. And we were doing like ecological momentary assessment, looking at daily stress and daily hassles and the relationship with um, with uh, with uh, headache. Uh, so mostly tension headache, but also 
migraine headache and some folks had cluster headaches. But anyway, I was in a lab where we were doing kind of innovative stuff and I had a couple of uh, colleagues in the lab who were doing web-based interventions, developing interventions for tinnitus, which is, you know, ringing in the ears, which is exacerbated by anxiety and stress, as mm -hmm. well as uh, a web-based intervention for headaches. And so when I uh, graduated, I came off or I went to Palo Alto to uh, for internship and um, I was on a rotation during internship where I had to develop an education product project. And because I was uh, in the National Center for PTSD and because my dissertation research had been looking at um, uh, the onset of PTSD and motor vehicle accident survivors, I decided that I would want to build an early intervention for uh, accident survivors um, mm -hmm. who are hospitalized. So while they're in the ER or in the uh, in the um, in the um, trauma wards recovering, when I came to Palo Alto, I was on a rotation at the National Center for PTSD, and my dissertation had been in looking at recent trauma survivors and and the path, the the course of uh, PTSD um, mm -hmm. right from the emergency department. Uh, out to six months and looking at kind of the peritraumatic, what's happening in the emergency department, um, mm -hmm. as well as kind of the early post-traumatic kind of maintaining factors. Anyway, mm -hmm. I've been working on a study um, while in graduate school of, an, of a telephone-based intervention for recent trauma survivors using, mm -hmm. you know, your typical CBT stuff, uh, you know, mm -hmm. exposure and cognitive therapy and um, psychoeducational components. And so, I had developed on uh, my internship, kind of I scoped out uh, and designed kind of the functional specifications for an early intervention website. And then on postdoc, I was able to work with a, a collaborator at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, to start developing that. It was called Journey to Trauma Recovery. Mm -hmm. And um, and so that that's really where my interest you know, began right from graduate school, right through kind of early intervention. And then in 2000, and um, I guess it was about during my postdoc uh, at, at the VA Palo Alto in Stanford, um, the, um, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq were heating up. They were just supposed right. to be easy wars, <clears throat> like all wars. And mm -hmm. we were getting a lot of returnees who had uh, PTSD and, and traumatic brain injuries. And so um, while I had been developing this website for hospital uh, hospitalized trauma survivors, um, mm -hmm. it became a, a thing in, in the Department of Defense in the U.S. and also the VA that they wanted to have web-based um, resources for recent returnees who had um, post-deployment issues. And so uh, we were... Uh, uh, connected with uh, the Department of Defense, and we took what we had been working on with the Early Interventions website, and we um, reversioned it for um, for military trauma survivors, and it became something called AfterDeployment.org, um, mm -hmm. which was a huge website that had originally had 12 different types of what we were calling workshops, but they were basically um, like almost like standalone web-based interventions for uh, smoking cessation, anxiety, sleep, war memory right. was the PTSD workshop. But we um, we were funded to develop six of the 12 original workshops. And these were multi-session kind of web-based interventions. And mm -hmm. so for the next few years, we were working on that. Mm -hmm. um, and then what we noticed was that uh, in our men's trauma recovery program on the Menlo Park campus of the VA, um, 
the these younger veterans were coming in and it's kind of web 2.0 they were mm -hmm. using smartphones and we were thinking why are we building these multi-session workshops <laughs> where people have to sit down you know for a, a half an hour kind of replicating what psychotherapy would be like you do session one then you do session two and you do right. in between and and it was like they're not doing that and so um we had the idea that uh maybe we should be building an app you know apps are cool mm -hmm. so yeah we were able to take all of that work and we were uh that we had been doing on the web and we were able to version uh, it for um, mobile devices and turned it into ptsd coach and that wow. kind of the whole thing off. Um, in addition, I was still continuing to build web-based interventions, um, like right. craft, like you're aware of. Um, yes. But we transitioned and we started a mobile apps program. And you know, since that time, we've developed 16 apps, and they've been downloaded over two million times. I'm not sure what wow. the current number is, but wow. um, yeah. Wow. So that's, a bit yeah, that's a yeah, fantastic. That really gives a nice background to how you got into this, and also the evolution to where you are now with. Um, app-based interventions and PTSD coach. So just a couple of things then to dig into the differences between, first of all, the sort of PTSD um, patients that you began to work with, um, and then the ones that you're working with particularly now, so those with military backgrounds. Um, do you find that there are any very salient differences in terms of one, I mean, maybe it's obvious, but the trauma and the interpretation of the trauma and then uh, the access to mental health services? Yeah, so definitely. I mean, I think there's commonalities, obviously, and the symptomatology is fairly common. They mm -hmm. share the same kind of, you know, um, re-experiencing avoidance that kind of maintains the, the re-experiencing and the hyperarousal. So mm -hmm. the, the symptoms are, are similar. I mean, there's differences, I think, in terms of um, you know, the, the genders of the populations that seek care out there in the community where you would see a lot more uh, women who are seeking care in VA, 90%, you know, male. So we see the guys and we see um, a lot of the folks who, um, you know, who, who are expressing kind of anger and um, um, more, more like externalizing, you know, substance use. Um, mm -hmm. And they have a lot uh, longer kind of chronicity of, of the disorder, so a lot more collateral damage than what you see maybe with um, uh, folks in the community who might have recently had a, a, a tra traumatic event and, and they realize things are not going back to normal or their family realizes it and they're, they're more prone to seek treatment. You know, mm -hmm. veterans and military service members, as you know, they're they're not really prone to seek treatment, um, and right. so it takes a lot of um, a, a lot of damage uh, um, and a lot of trying to figure it out on your own, self-medicating, all of that kind of stuff before they would would show up for treatment. So, oftentimes, right. by the time we see a veteran, you know, they're they're they have a lot of other stuff that needs to be cleaned up. I think the yeah. core PTSD symptoms when we hit them with like prolonged exposure therapy or with cognitive processing therapy are real evidence-based treatments. I think mm -hmm. for the core symptoms, we can do a really good job. We can reduce their avoidance. We can reduce their, uh, their, their re-experiencing symptoms, help them with their hyperarousal. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, then you have all of the, the, the social kind of dysfunction, the relationship problems, um, mm -hmm. cleaning up all that other damage. Uh, right. and, and there's other comorbidities that might come along as well that you have to then work on. 
but I do think in terms of you know their 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 core PTSD symptoms, they they share a lot with with folks in the community. So right. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And it's, it's good that you made a reference to this gender difference. And I noticed in your RCT that you had a disproportionate number of, of women taking up the app for the trial, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there a, do you find that there's a, a tendency to have kind of a certain profile of user? I saw a talk given by someone at the George Bush Institute last year um, looking at recruitment. And she was, they were using sort of a, a marketing approach of market, market segmentation. Um, and they'd seen that there were, you know, they, I think there were five different categories of potential recruitee um, patient. And among those were those who basically were just up for anything. And they would use, they would, you know, sort of want to use anything that was available to them. You mentioned that the original approach you'd had uh, was this suite of online web-based interventions. And now you have a, a suite of, of apps. Do you find that you have a lot of crossover and maybe it's related to comorbidity where if somebody uses one app, they'll then be more likely to use another? Yeah, I mean, that's something that we haven't really been able to to track well. Right. Because with all of the apps that we build, they are entirely uh, um, unconnected, if you will. Right. So we're not able to collect data on who downloaded the app. So once we put them out there in the wild, you know, the, the regulations mm-hmm. that we abide by in VA and the U.S. Department of, of Veterans Affairs is that um, we are not allowed to collect any identifying information from the user. And right. so, um, you know, we are what we do have when we do research and it's different is that we're able to get um, the data from the app because they're using a different version of the app. Mm-hmm. Um, we are working right now on building a, a platform that would allow us to at least get user data over time with right. de-identified. De- it's it's anonymous uh, data that we would get, but we would at least be able to get session by session use data over time to see things like attrition and uh, engagement, mm-hmm. those kind of things. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know if, uh, you know, anecdotally, we, we find that, you know, from app store reviews and, you know, it's, the, oh, this is great. This was developed by the folks who did this. And they, we, you should also check out their mindfulness coach app or check out this right. other app. So it does seem like, you know, if folks get introduced, some folks get introduced to one of the apps, they might be inclined to then use some of the other apps. Um, right. But, um, okay. Yeah, I think I think there are these folks out there that uh, you know they they shop and they shop and they shop and they they um, I, I don't know you know if it's a segment of the um, the population out there who kind of per- just continue to go after the next thing the next thing the next thing mm-hmm. and they never really sink in and like work something enough to get the benefit out of it. And so we do see people like that definitely in the clinical context. So I would imagine they're also out there in the self-help world as well. Right. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And in in relation then to sort of the the trajectory of different uh, potential clients and uh, patients, you've mentioned in the article that maybe PTSD coach would be, uh, would increase access to formal services, but it might also impede it. Yeah. Is that something you've been able to explore at all? Yeah. So um, I currently am in the, the fourth year of a four year trial of mm. using PTSD coach in primary care with veterans. And so mm. the study is a, a randomized controlled trial 
that has two conditions. One is uh, treatment as usual. And so in VA, if you screen positive for PTSD in primary care, we have, um, we have mental health specialists in primary care who can, you know, the, they can um, have a warm handoff to, the, to that, that specialist, usually a psychologist. Wow. And so that is treatment as usual. And in primary care, um, mental health professionals and primary care physicians and, and the primary care staff in general are kind of a little bit afraid of PTSD. They know how to handle depression. They know how to handle anxiety and they know mm -hmm. how to handle problem drinking. But depression mm -hmm. is this other thing that can be a little bit unnerving for them. And mm -hmm. so um, they don't really have good brief uh, evidence-based treatments in primary care for PTSD. So they can work on sleep and they can work on anxiety and you know relaxation and those kind of things, but they don't have good treatments for PTSD. So what we have usually is that they'll get a few sessions, four sessions maybe, brief sessions in primary care, and then they'll get a referral to mental health. Right. So if you screen positive, they'll offer you a referral. And if you say to mental health, and if you say, I'm not really up to that, well, maybe there's some things they can work on in primary care around the PTSD. Um, but often what happens is that folks will not take them up on the referral to uh, yeah. treatment seeking, even the talking to the psychologist. You know, it's a big problem, like getting folks into care, as you know, with the VA craft stuff. Right. Um, so... Um, the study is intended to do uh, two things. The primary outcome is can we actually with PTSD coach in primary care with minimal clinician support, so the same kind of four sessions with um, uh, uh, psychologist in primary care with a protocol manual that um, Kyle Passamato at the, um, at the VA Syracuse and I developed, um, can we reduce their PTSD, like actually do something for their PTSD, reduce their PTSD, and then can we also increase the likelihood that they will take us up on a mental health referral? And so mm -hmm. we'll, and this is uh, Passamato and Kuhn et al, 2017, I think, where we had a pilot study, or maybe it's 16. Um, I can send it to you if you don't yes. have, um, where we demonstrated that we, it looks like we could do both. We could reduce PTSD right. for those who still need help they're more likely than treatment as usual, or this was versus PTSD coach only to go and get a mental health, uh, to take us up on a mental health referral. Um, because that's the big thing. Like a lot of them will say, oh yeah, I'll go. And they don't actually show up. And you know, right. a lot of them right. say, thank you. And so we really yeah. have the problem that the veterans with PTSD and primary care are not getting the appropriate care. And they're oftentimes they can be overutilizers of other care. And so how do right. you, to the appropriate care so that they can get their mental health, uh, their PTSD uh, uh, dealt with. And so um, I do think that, you know, having like we have in craft, uh, having a PTSD coach, some of the same stuff around, you know, who's the, um, uh, who, who is there, who's available, mm -hmm. um, what treatment might look like. So, you know, so demystifying some of it, I think there's a, a popular misconception out there based on media and, and uh, movies and, and cable uh, shows that, you know, mm -hmm. that you kind of go in and you, you lay on a couch and you tell them about your, 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 uh, your childhood and about sexual fantasies and it's like spiraling, right? And, you know, uh, right. versus evidence-based treatments where we, behavioral kind of treatments where we help people do practical things and deal with the symptoms and, and manage those symptoms and, and use evidence-based kind of theory-driven um, right. interventions to reduce anxiety and avoidance.
So I'm yeah. glad that you raised that 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 uh, blurring of lines and that confusion that often leads to sort of uh, inhibition to seek treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked a little bit before we started recording this interview um, about the origins of some psychological sort of talking cures uh, and Freud's idea of infantile trauma. Um, and I, I want to ask, uh, and again, this is, is, is a little bit distant from what we're talking about, but um, in terms of infant trauma, and they, they do differ, the kinds of trauma Freud was talking about, um, and dealing with post-traumatic symptoms and related distress, is there any scope for technology being able to um, help with younger patients, children, adolescents? Yeah, so... Um I, 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 before we started recording, I had uh, alluded to Victor Carrion's work, um, mm-hmm. who um, is at Stanford, and he had um, a, a person on his team who was working on a serious game for mm-hmm. child trauma survivors. And so the idea uh, of the game, which was really cool, is that you would help this other person in the game kind of navigate the, the kind of the post-traumatic kind of world that that person right. was in, even though it really was really an intervention for the person playing the game. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. was, I, I think that that's a kind of a, a, a cool way of uh, helping um, children who are, you know, they're kind of, um, they're interested in games. They like games and play. Yeah. I think if you can make therapy, uh, you know, um, engaging in that way. Um, and, you know, there so, are, yeah, there are treatments that are evidence-based that are based on kind of the same core theories that drive adult treatments, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of um, uh, teaching skills, uh, doing exposure-based work, doing um, cognitive kind of work. Um, right. Uh, there, there is the trauma-focused child uh, um, CBT that's right. available. The, the, are you aware of the child... Tra- the, chi- the National Child Traumatic Stress um, Network that was funded by SAMHSA in the United States. There's a, uh, they have uh-huh. a whole implementation side where they do uh, learning collaboratives to train up folks in okay. in that, that particular type of treatment. Right, right. Okay. I haven't, I'll, I'll I haven't seen that translated yet for, I haven't seen any of that translated yet for web or mobile, but it might be. I mm-hmm. just haven't kept up with the child side of it. Given right. that I'm a VA um, and I'm working with veterans who are yes yeah yeah oh well thanks for introducing us to the, to that work of uh, Victor Carrion's you say Carrion uh, yeah Carrion Victor Carrion yeah it's interesting it sounds as though if I understood correctly it's it's like a virtual version of play therapy in a sense where you know the child will identify with the characters to work through uh, the experiences is is that yeah exactly so navigating and like helping the the child the helping the the person in the in the game yeah um and at the same time they're they're learning how to do that for themselves right right um okay so i want to move on to sort of more generally speaking the applications of technology for uh, therapy and psychological interventions um you're situated in sort of the heart of tech development right yep and um, so I guess you're you're being informed by and contributing to the, to the sort of wider current of tech development. So are there any things that are emerging now that you find particularly exciting in in tech assisted therapy? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the work, you know, obviously I could say machine learning and artificial mm-hmm. intelligence and all of that cool stuff, chatbots um, mm-hmm. and all of that cool stuff that's not yet quite ready for prime time. I think Wobot, if you've heard of Wobot, um, right, yeah, yeah. It was connected in some way with Facebook and they've done a trial of that for stress and anxiety in college students and it looked pretty promising. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't think they're really quite, ready yet for prime time. Um, So I do think that, you know, kind of, you have to kind of be a bit incremental uh, Mm -hmm. and not too risky. I think that where we're going is kind of given, you know, with the COVID-19 lockdown that we're all experiencing, um, you know, telehealth and the Mm -hmm. integration, you know, having platforms that integrate the different mm-hmm. technologies, so both the uh, patients and the providers can be working through a platform, um, is kind of where we're going uh, with what we're doing. So right. um, I think that you know, much like you know, a lot of technology has been integrated into our smart uh, phone, right? And to, we don't have a camera anymore. We you know we don't have so many things. It's mm-hmm. just I think that psychotherapy and you know, mental health uh, interventions are going to be coming, uh, are going to be kind of consolidated into a kind of a platform like that, where right. we'll be able to get more insight into uh, what patients are doing um, throughout the week, rather than kind of this um, problematic sum, summative kind of data that we get with like, tell me about your last week, what happened, and mm-hmm. all they remember is the most salient thing like the parking lot getting you know parking at the Mm. hospital and the fight they had with their wife the night before where you can actually more uh accurate um data throughout the week and a lot of it doesn't have to be data that they're actually reporting but it's just data coming off for example sensors and location things like that like you can think about ptsd patients and um, you're asking them to do exposures out in the real world, you could see, did they actually leave their house or how much more they're leaving their house? And did they go to the, the supermarket? Did they go to the crowded marketplace? Um, right. You could do all of that. And so having a platform where, you know, kind of, I think it's artificial, kind of the brick and mortar, come and talk to me for an hour, and that's going to get you better. Yeah. Um, is you know, a, a vestige of a bygone era. And I think we're going to be seeing, you know, where folks are and we're already seeing it. We have, um, we have, for example, um, apps that um, are intended to be used uh, with psychotherapies with our evidence-based treatments for PTSD. Like we have something called PE coach, prolonged exposure coach, mm-hmm. where it, it, it documents the homework, like when they did the homework and, and it timestamps it. And so things like adherence to assignments and making sure holding, you know, the, the, the participant accountable or the, I should say mm-hmm. not research. Um, mm-hmm. accountable. Um, you know, I just think that that's, it's got to go in that direction. And we can actually be with our patients out there in the real world, helping to coach them in the moment. Maybe, maybe uh, not us, but an avatar or some kind of a you know, um, uh, of us that's kind of in the technology, kind of in their ear, reinforcing, you know, positive coping statements and and things like that. So that's what excites me is like, maybe not at some point, the artificial intelligence and having vast amounts of data and being able for the machines to learn and to kind of, you know, be able to uh, respond to dysfunctional thinking and give, you know, um, give 
good handles and stuff. But I, I think just kind of let's start integrating. Let's start pulling this together so that it can inform care, you know. Just going back to you saying about trying to get sort of real time, perhaps big data informed uh, feedback for the patients. Um, how have you been able to integrate personalization sort of on a more modest scale into any of your interventions? Good question. I, I, the way I think about it right there is there's like self-tailoring or, or, you know, where you can go in and you can do things intentionally to render a program the way you like it. Yeah. And then there's the kind of the, the behind the scenes where the program is kind of responding and adapting and figuring out what your preferences are, right? And it's serving up certain things. And so we don't have that yet. Uh, we mm-hmm. do have some folks who have uh, started pilots of doing that, uh, not inside our shop, um, but we do have collaborators who have, um, you know, for example, uh, been working on a, like a chat bot for PTSD coach that could be like responsive to the, the user as they're going through it. Um, but these are kind of, you know, not again, not really ready for prime time kind of things. Right. What we do have in, for example, from the beginning in PTSD coach and some of our other apps is, um, um, you know, a basic kind of algorithm, a matrix of tools. And if you give it a thumbs up, it's more likely to show up in the algorithm, in, in, in the, um, in the flow versus right. if you it thumbs down. And so there's a little bit of that kind of tailoring happening and you can bring in and personalize the app with your own music and with your own pictures and that kind of stuff. But we don't have that engine behind the scene yet, kind of knowing what your behaviors are so that mm-hmm. it could, you know, kind of start to adapt. Um, right. Like, hey, right. well, where'd that it's, come from? If you like this tool, maybe you, you would be offered up this other tool that's similar or something like that. We don't have right. that. And that's, right. again, because our apps are not connected. Um, mm-hmm. and we, have, we don't really have the processing power. Like, on, oh, we might one day, but we, we would need to have, like, an engine kind of off on, on a server somewhere that would be collecting the data from everybody and from you and being able to, to yes, do that yeah. kind of stuff. Like you say, it's incremental, isn't it? And the priorities and, you know, waiting till you, the, the permissions are available. That's another question I have, you know, particularly when it's coming to collecting passive data. Um, how comfortable do you find people are with that? So, you know, if you give them access to all kinds of channels that might inform and might actually tailor and improve the intervention they're receiving. I, I don't know, you know, if Google Home is switched on and it's picking up on things that might somehow provide um a benefit uh, and that's an extreme but how comfortable are people with sharing their data yeah it's i mean it's one of those things where you know you would think that people are really kind of reluctant to do it but um mm-hmm. it seems like i don't know if it's because you know we are healthcare providers we're kind of authority figures and we're kind of trusted that people seem to be um okay with it and you know we had right. when we originally um proposed the idea of PTSD coach before we even built it, we went to the uh, we went into our residential PTSD programs to because we had a whole bunch of ideas about what we should be building, you know, which was kind of a, just taking what we had been building and turning it into an app in a lot of ways. But when mm-hmm. we went into the uh, into the residential PTSD programs and said, you know, kind of with the idea of design thinking, let's go talk with the end users first and figure out, you know, find out what their needs are and what the problems are and like define it and then start thinking about some solutions. Um, you know, we had put that out there that 
we would we would be able to put in the app like location-based services like if you're near a VA hospital, you know, you um, it, it would know that you're near the hospital and it could show you where that hospital is. And we could possibly even like do something at the time we were kind of a little naive about it, but um, other users of the app who would like to connect other veterans. And so mm-hmm. having location-based services available like that. Um, and, you know, it was at the time, which is 2009, 2010, it was like no way in hell we want you tracking us. You know they're veterans, right? They're they're they're, yeah. they're suspicious of that um, for good reason, being in a war zone, right? So yes. Um, but then when we developed PTSD coach and we brought it back into the, the trauma recovery programs, which is kind of you know maybe um, part of the, uh, the the trend that was happening with the uptake of smartphones. You know the sec- secular trend that was happening um, beyond just the veteran population. Um, they were they they were asking like why why don't you have location services like where we find the behind right. and it was like well, you guys said like three or four years ago you didn't want that and it's like yeah well, it changed you know and it was like the right. I think that's kind of true for all of us right where we're just almost like we almost expect that everybody's seeing our data you know they all have it <laughs> we just Yes. Anonymity is no longer sort of a short privilege that we've, we've experienced. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it seems like folks are, are OK, uh, you know, as long as it's going to be helpful and, and the risk is, is um, you know, they maybe know the risk or they don't really want to know the risk. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. That's probably we, an important part we, of it. We, would put a risk, we have a risk like that, but there's always a risk. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you mentioned that, well, and it is, it's, it's sort of cost-benefit analysis, isn't it? Yeah. You, you mentioned um, the possibility of peer connection. That's really interesting. So have you been able to facilitate that? So sort of the benefits of a group dynamic and sharing through no. through apps? No. Uh, well, um, yeah, there, there, uh, there's um, a group on our team who have been building Couples Coach, which is basically mm. having an app, the same app, for the couple and one gets they both download the app and then they can do things together on it so that's mm-hmm. probably the, the the only example of where you might be able to kind of communicate with somebody else through the apps right. because again the requirement that our apps are not connected and that um you know we wouldn't be able to to monitor that um that communication you know and have like a moderated kind of discussion or something like that if if somebody were like suicidal or homicidal mm-hmm. or, you know there's a risk there that um, as a system healthcare system we just can't take that on yeah yeah so yeah we haven't really it, it, um, it's always like one of those things that would be great to do that but and veterans always want it like to connect yeah. with them. we do like have things like in our ptsd family coach app we have a Twitter feed that is, uh, it's moderated though, like that we'll check in and make sure that, you know, if somebody mm-hmm. wants something, we, I think what we do is we take things down more so than like, wait, uh, I'm not sure exactly how that works, but it, we do yeah. have to be careful, you know. I think, you know, the, the resources then become high sort of real human resources because relying on AI to, to do that moderation is, is risky mm-hmm. too, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, I'll get to the last question. You'd mentioned there briefly about COVID-19. So I'm just wondering if there's anything that you've seen that's trying to address or anticipate mental health fallout from this pandemic that uh, is, is worth noting. Um, in terms of technology? 
Yeah, I mean, specifically in terms of technology, although it's open to anything else that you, you've observed. Yeah, well, I might have something to share, but it, we've been told not to talk about it. Until... <laughs> we won't tell anybody, just 100 months students, don't worry. Uh, we, yeah, so, um, you know, at some point, maybe in the next few days, I'll be able to email you and share something. But um, okay. right now, I can't share what's in the works because it has to go through That's... clearance up through, actually, through up, up through the White House. Uh, they want right. 19 related things coming out of the, the U.S. government to get clearance from right, right. the White House. So, but anyway, well, that, um, have, that I could have... be a more exciting teaser to end this interview <laughs> with. That's, that's a Netflix quality. Yeah, the the um, the, um, the state of California, I know, is uh, putting. They've asked. Uh, so at the at Stanford, we have something called the Stanford Mental Health Technology and Innovation Hub um, that I co-chair, and they they asked us to help them identify resources um, that could help folks who are experiencing uh, distress related to COVID nineteen, and so. Um, you know, we, we pulled together some of the things like our own apps, like, you know, we had a, a review of the evidence for our suite of apps a, a couple of years ago um, that mm -hmm. I think is pretty much pretty well up to date. So we were able to provide them with that. But also things like, um, you know, there's some commercial um, apps uh, or programs. There's one called Miro that's pretty good. That has, it's a mindfulness-based uh, CBT. Um, program for depression and anxiety kind of things. And so that's a that's a pretty good program. There's also um, Headspace, you know, the yeah. Yeah. Uh, we have a mindfulness coach, which is, is also really good, gets really super yeah. high ratings and um, people like it and it's free compared to Headspace. Yeah. Um, but then there's uh, things like um, for sleep, like uh, Sleepio and Shuteye, which uh, right. is based on cognitive behavioral therapy. So people obviously are having disrupted sleep during this time period. So um, so things that could kind of help reduce stress, uh, improve sleep, um, I think, uh, you know, um, can be helpful, but, um, yeah, I, I haven't seen, I mean, obviously we're trying to respond to it as quickly as we can. So I haven't really seen anything that's specifically targeting, um, COVID-19 related anxiety or stress, uh, mm. at this point, it takes a while to develop something, right? So, and and a lot of specific data being gathered as well, I guess. I mean, I know that we're gathering data on specific impact among healthcare workers, for example. So it's maybe a bit early to to tailor things. Yeah, and we we, we have you know our our um, our office of research and development in the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, you know, they were very quick to kind of put out like you know rapid responses for uh, calls for for research, and so there's um, right. I think I, today there was. They put out a call like uh, three weeks ago, and I think they said they got over a hundred applications that came in um, wow. for COVID-19 related. Um, and this is across across healthcare, but some of them are, are I'm sure, related to, to the stress and also the trauma. You know that day in and day out, if you're a healthcare worker and you're dealing with, you know, you yeah. you sign up, you wanted to be a healthcare worker, but you didn't realize you were going to have to deal with significant this significant amount of death. Um, yeah, just day in and day out, and also your own personal safety and the safety of your family when you come home. And um, yeah, it's pretty uniquely um, convergence of, of of pressures here, um, and particularly yeah. for those working in ICUs when they're not able to make contact with one another and with their patients. Um, and a lot of the time, it's 
yeah, particularly stressful. Yeah, and I don't know, like with the, I don't know if it's there yet with the the shortage of, you know, ventilators and, you know, there's yeah. kind of moral injury. Like if you mm. have to decide who's going to get that precious ventilator. Um, yeah. and, it's uh, hard to believe that that's happening in, you know, in the U, back in the UK, sort of keeping a pace of that, uh, that problem is, has arisen. Um, in Malaysia, not so much because the the rates haven't been too high as yet, and hopefully won't get to that rate. So so far, the provision of things like ventilators has been all right. But certainly for PPE, there's there's a, a real shortage that's been. Oh involved. yeah, yeah. It's interesting. There's been some. Um, I, I've heard at least one um, uh, instance where they are trying to kind of outsource the decision making about who oh, gets to. A committee rather than like an ethics or like a committee of wow. something than the, the person you know than the than the frontline provider to make that decision wow. so clear criteria That's... for who would get it and that you wouldn't be then responsible well you could also kind of you know you'd, you you might be kind of angry with the system that put you in that position yeah and, but, but um, you're not pulling the trigger it's like an inverse firing squad you exactly. know, only one of you got the bullet while wow. that's uh i mean it's it sounds like it's it's better than than having to make that decision when it's an impossible decision. But um, yeah, the, the aspect of moral injury is going to be really interesting and you know challenging. Yeah. 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 Well, I really appreciate your time, Eric. It's been wonderful to to learn more about your work, and um, it's interesting how COVID nineteen has has sort of changed things a lot. So the necessity to do a lot of different approaches to preparing our lecture materials has meant that we've had to get in contact with a lot of people and catch up with a lot of people. So I'm glad yeah. to have had this this opportunity. So the yeah. silver lining. Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, I think we heard on, on one of our calls uh, last week that the VA at the US VA was seeing about 2000 telehealth appointments a day. And then that was at the end of February and like in the middle of March or the end of March, it was something like 11,000 a day. So I think that wow. you know, folks who were reluctant to start doing telehealth, you know, are going to be up to speed and they're probably going to become, you know, a real strong adherence of it uh, for it. And so um, I don't know if right. we're going to go back, you know, and not any time, yeah. right, right, because we're not out of the out of the danger yet. So. Um, Would they the those that have taken up telehealth now? Is it is it known whether or not they previously been in treatment? Is this sort of a, an alternative to their in person treatment? Are these new cases? You know? No, most of them are transitioned over, like existing right. cases. And just at one point, it was like, okay, we can't see you in person anymore. Let's get you. Uh, um, a, um, they they they'll send them if they don't have a laptop or a, a, a mobile device. They'll send them an iPad with. Right. The and, the, and actually with our apps on, on those devices um, so that they can engage in telemental health. Um, and so wow. a lot of it is, is that, um, but it's just been like on a, you know, on uh, um, turn on a dime, you know, to, to do yeah. that. Um, and so it's yeah. really kind of interesting how many folks are going to actually be like, hey, you know, it's actually, I can see my doctor, I can talk to my doctor and I don't have to drive to the VA. I don't have to, have to even get really dressed or anything. Um, right. Why would I want to do that if this is just as good as, you know, going in? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like you said, it can be the, the tide might not turn back. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's going to. I mean, I think right. it, you know, some people like to go in, but um, I do think it's going to bring on a whole bunch of new users um, that, that right. weren't there in the past. So. Let yeah, me I, stretch this a little bit. Let me stretch this one a little bit further then in, in, in relation to that. Um, 
sort of positive outcomes of this whole crisis. Do you, do you think that there might be more preventative um, benefits as well in terms of just shifts in how we function more broadly? So getting away from sort of mental health intervention, do you see possible just positive changes in the way we function as a society and the way we live our lives that can then reduce the chances of um, developing mental health problems? I, you know, I mean, I, you know, this, yeah, I, I do think that I'm hopeful that I'm not sure it's going to happen. You know, in our country, things are so politically divided, like never before in my lifetime, where mm -hmm. really the sense of, you know, us and them and, you know, right and wrong. It's just very black and white, you know, mm -hmm. um, it's kind of a creepy way of politics that we hadn't seen. I hadn't seen in my lifetime where, you yeah. know, good and bad and, and, you know, really horrible kind of stuff. Um, but mm -hmm. I'm hopeful that, you know, things like healthcare, like if everybody has healthcare, it's good for everybody, right? Like with the yeah. virus, you know, if you, if you, if you have a cough or a symptom and you're like reluctant to go in because you're going to lose your house, um, yeah. cost, you know, then you end up infecting everybody in your community, right? Mm -hmm. and, so, and then the uh, uh, things like um, uh, uh, the broadband, like we have a lot of areas in the country that do don't have access to, um, to uh, broadband. And so, you know, they can't participate in society in terms of, you know, being online to be able to get good advice and good information and also to do shopping and and things mm -hmm. like that. There hasn't really been a, a lot of motivation to kind of get everybody onto the, um, you know, onto, onto broadband. And so um, I'm hopeful that, you know, some things that have been so politically contentious over the, over the years, this might be some momentum for folks to think, well, you know, we're all in this together. We should all be connected better and we should all be taking care of each other better because, you know, yeah. your virus today is my virus tomorrow. And so, Right, right. It might be short-lived, you know, it might just be like we'll all snap back into how we were before, but I would like to think that this could be a good lesson in, in um, you know, and how we treat folks who are kind of on the lower rungs of our, our society, like the folks who, you know, work in, 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 the, in the supermarkets or mm -hmm. do the kind of the essential things that are keeping us alive right now, you know, as we're all yes. bunkered down, you know, yeah. they're we're out there kind of being exposed. And, and, and so I don't know, I'm, you know, I'm hopeful, but um, I think, yeah, your hope, your hope, I think it's, it's great. And you considered some really important aspects there. You know, one of the things about frontline workers, that whole idea has been expanded, I guess, because, you know, we're looking at healthcare workers who, who you know, have to be there and really put their lives on the line, but people who haven't signed up for that kind of thing, maybe haven't got that vocational bent, but they're just on, you know, the checkout in a supermarket. But essentially, they're they're, they're having to deal with the same kind of risk and ambiguity um, around contagion, etc. That you know, uh, you know, frontline workers kind of have a little bit more expectation to deal with. So we're, we're looking at, you know, the risks of, you know, mental health threats to to people in healthcare, but also comparing it to people who are these sort of new essential workers that we, you know, taking for granted a little bit more. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, we had we had a you know in in, in uh, the U.S. there was this push to get a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, but it's it's like well yeah these are people who who need and like healthcare you know universal healthcare it's, it's something mm -hmm. that who are exposing themselves they might be working for less than fifteen dollars an hour without any healthcare benefits no sick leave. Uh. You know, 
it's ridiculous. It's just so stupid, you know. So anyway, I'm hoping we have. Yeah. yeah, we have the perfect irony back in the UK where we have a lot of overseas um, medics working on the front lines who don't qualify for the National Health Service healthcare themselves, which is, um, you know, so we have all of us natively have this amazing heritage of having, you know, universal healthcare, but then we've got this strange little niche where um, people are at risk and they're not getting the benefits. But anyway, I th I think um, your, your hope is really substantiated and bolstered by the efforts that you're making, I think that's, you know, fantastic. All of the stuff that you've been doing and that you've, you've summarized today for decades now, um, it, it makes a huge difference. And hopefully that's going to spread contagiously to sort of, you know, hopeful and optimistic, but also, as you said, like pulling together and acknowledging and trying to, you know, contribute a little bit to this greater good. Yeah. And what, and so I, this has been one-sided obviously for, for, uh, you know, um, for your class, but, um, are you, uh, what's your research agenda looking like? Do you have a program uh, up and going? What's, um... yeah, we're just so sort of in, trying not to be too reactive, but agile enough in reaction to um, the COVID-19, we're working with sort of psychiatry here in the state. Um, so it's a bit like a US state uh, around a big city of mm -hmm. KL. Um, and trying to um, collect more routine data uh, among healthcare workers, whether they be nurses, medics, and maybe sort of um, uh, essentially probably limiting it to those that have direct contact with patients. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the, the initial motivation being trying to anticipate problems that they might have to improve services and care of the employees, but also just to get a better handle on, you know, a crisis like this that's fairly unprecedented, um, what the impacts are, are, you know, sort of across different people, individual differences in terms of resilience, in terms of their perception of their risk to contagion, uh, what they've been able to do, little worries like we mentioned PPE, well not little worries, a range of yeah, yeah. sort of real concerns, PPE, not being able to spend time with family, concerns about contagion within the family, whether they've whether they've been contaminated themselves and they don't know because the peculiarities of the symptom uh, of this of this virus and sort of symptomatology. Um, so, yeah, we're looking at that and then extending that to other um, essential workers, as, as I mentioned. So that's the, the main research and kind of looking at what's happened in China. So because I'd spent a lot of years in China and um, can work with colleagues there and get a, a, an advanced uh, insight to what they've already been through and coming out the other end. Uh, yeah. It's interesting to see. I mean, yeah, that's a whole, you know, huge topic culturally and psychologically as to how they how they were able to mobilize their their strengths, um, their controversial strengths to really lock yeah. down very, very quickly and effectively. But it, it's also meant because of that confidence in the sort of um, singular purpose of, of the Chinese uh, government, the confidence among healthcare workers has probably been a little bit different too. And that changes, you know, the sort of psychological risk. Um, and that's pervasive among the Chinese people I've spoken to. Um, their their confidence in the authority, even though we see it as sort of authoritarian, paternalistic, that can be really beneficial in a time of uncertainty. So uh, while, you know, in other places we might be sort of rubbing our heads and cynically wondering whether or not the government's quick enough or overreacting, in China there's kind of a submission to the collective and, uh, you know, this is good, I trust this, I'll, I'll put my life on the line for this as a consequence. Very interesting, actually. Yeah, that is very interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, 
obviously here we have a different situation. So. <laughs> yeah, but, it uh, couldn't be more stark a contrast, right, to the to the politics you described there. I mean, it's really. Yeah, we we um we being in California, we were a, a state that was kind of that was hit pretty early, and um, what's good is that our our governor, you know, was quick to respond, and we were we're in a county where the first uh, community transmission they they documented it here, and so um, right. we were shut down really quickly, and they really implemented, you know, pretty pretty um, what would seem like extreme measures at the time. Now it's like yeah. normal. Um, right, but right. Uh, it seems like it's really had a, a, a real benefit. The, the, the cases were doubling every two to three days, and now they're doubling like every two, they doubled in two to three weeks. And so wow. um, yeah. It's, yeah. it's kind of, you know, they're, they're flattening the curve, as they like to say. Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah, it's surprising. I mean, I, I'm not saying I'll be surprised to see California ahead of the curve a little bit there, but um, it's reassuring. Yeah, New York is on the other side, and they're they're really you know yeah. kind of got out of control there. But apparently that came from Europe. You know, ours came from uh, from from China. Ah, um, oh, of course. And, yeah. uh, the on the they've they've traced the the this kind of the the virus on the east coast to um to Europe. It took right. a little longer to stop the flow there. So right. Uh, well, cool, cool. It's great talking to you. Yes. So you're you're Saturday morning. You you have your your dog in a bag walk ready to go <laughs> yes yeah i'm afraid that that is the the ultimate uh question are you able to take your dog for a walk oh yeah we can get out and walk around the neighborhood people like pass by and like if they're on the same side of the street they walk to the other side they're friendly and nice and everybody's kind of looking for a little connection right being holed yeah. up so um yeah. but we're able to to we make sure we you know at noon every day that uh, my daughter, my wife, and I—we go out and walk around the neighborhood for a half an hour, 45 minutes, just to stretch, you know, and um, oh, get out and fresh air. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's, yeah we're, we're not—we're not really. We're—we're we're able to get out and do food shopping. We're supposed to wear masks when we do that, and right. um, you know, and, and right. social distance. And they—they they meter kind of people coming into the store. So outside of supermarkets, they have, you know, lines, and everybody's six feet apart, um, and they let like 20 people in at a time. Um, right, so you might right, yeah. for half an hour. You got to time it just right so you can get in, you know, early and get out quick. But um, yes, yeah, speaking of which, I'm gonna uh, that's that's gonna be on my agenda this morning, I think. So fingers crossed, the lines aren't too bad. Yeah. But sorry for interrupting you there. I don't know if you can. Oh, no, it's all right. It's cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the line, yeah, the bit of delay. But yeah, I'm gonna go and take my dog for a little walk around our balcony, do a few laps of our. You know, ten meters square balcony, and then um, enjoy a bit of fresh air. <laughs> cool. cool. All right. Well, thank you so much, Eric. Really appreciate it, and I look forward to learning more about your work as it continues to to quickly develop. Yep. Yep. It's good. Good chat with you, and it's good to hear uh, what you're up to there in uh, in Malaysia. So take care, Mark. All right. Cheers, mate. See you later. Take care. Bye bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that and found a thing or two of interest. As I mentioned in the intro, Eric has now been in contact and the White House has approved the secret project. Eric and his team have just released COVID Coach, a mental health app to support and guide through the strains of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. So I've just heard this morning from Eric 
that COVID coach has been released on the App Store and so is available immediately for iPhone and iPad users. The Android version will follow soon. We'll be reporting on this as we get news. Thanks for listening and we look forward to sharing the next episode of Experts in the Field. Thank you.